The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 22, beginning at verse 23. We'll be reading through verse 31 this morning. The word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure in precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths, so that I profaned, so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy and have extorted from them, from the sojourner, without justice. And I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. We'll be reading to verse 25 this morning. The word of our God. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more 
will they malign those of his household. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Uh, Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Suppose for a moment that together we are all a company of Marines getting ready to go out into hostile territory. Uh, I know that's difficult for those of you who are in the Army or the Air Force, but you've been promoted this morning. You are now one of the few, the proud, the Marines. And we're going out into a hostile territory, into a jungle, and there you are with your platoon, and all of a sudden, you get ambushed. What do you do? If this is the first time you've ever thought about getting ambushed, you are in serious trouble. Because your natural instinct is going to be to do one of two things. To dive on the ground or to turn and run away from the people who are shooting at you. Your natural instincts are very likely to get both you and your fellow Marines killed. Those are the wrong things to do. The right thing to do is to actually turn toward the people who are ambushing you and to attack the ambush. See, as our whole platoon turns on the people shooting at us and we start shooting at them, they now instinctively, without even thinking about it, focus not on killing us, but on not being shot themselves. That is, they become far less effective in attacking us. And if we move quickly enough, we can overrun that ambush in a minute or even less. Yet here's the problem. Nobody naturally, instinctively, attacks an ambush. See, in order for you to do the right thing, your training has to override what you naturally would do if you were not trained. Now, see, the reason why Marine Corps officers train their men and actually warn them that, hey, you know, we go into this jungle, we might get ambushed, is not because they're trying to be downers. The reason why they're telling their men about the danger that exists It's because we don't want them to be surprised. And we want them to do the right thing if that ambush takes place. Uh, The reason is not complicated. That they want their men to live, and they want the mission to be advanced. Well, it turns out this morning Jesus is doing something very similar as he warns the disciples about the attacks that they can expect as they go out into the world proclaiming his word. Uh, Jesus is warning his disciples of the attacks that they will face, that we will face, because he doesn't want us to be surprised by the attacks and because he wants us to be prepared to do the right thing when the inevitable attacks come. Furthermore, Jesus is teaching us these things for the very same reasons. Uh, He wants us to win. See, he's sending us out to call in the sheep initially with the apostles, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but you can extend this to the Great Commission. He is sending us out to disciple the nations by teaching them everything that he has commanded us. And Jesus wants us to win, so he warns us about the attacks in advance, and he also tells us how we should respond. We're going to look at the way Jesus prepares us to win under four main headings. First, a most unusual battle plan. Second, Jesus prepares us for the world. Third, Jesus prepares us for our friends and relatives. And fourth, Jesus calls us to be like him. 
Let me give you those four main headings again. First, a most unusual battle plan. Second, Jesus prepares us for the world. Third, Jesus prepares us for our friends and relatives. And fourth, Jesus calls us to become like him. We begin this morning with our Lord's, uh, let's face it, rather unusual battle plan. Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, Christ's plan for his church, for us as his people, is that he's going to use us to disciple the nations. That is, he sends us out to disciple the nations, to teach them not simply to know, but to obey everything that he taught us. But I have to ask the question, how successful will this mission be? How comprehensive is God's plan for his church? Well, Jesus is sending us not simply to a small group, but to the ends of the earth. So that he will gather a vast multitude of people into his kingdom from every tribe, tongue, and language. If you want to think about how successful this mission will be, you can go all the way back to the promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, the Lord swears by himself. He's saying, I am totally committed to this. And then he makes this promise. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies. That's a really big promise. The degree to which God is going to disciple the nations through us, through his church, just staggers the imagination. And in light of that, we think, this is a really strange plan for how to do it. Knowing that there are fierce wolves who will oppose the Great Commission, Jesus sends out sheep to overcome them. Uh, let's be honest, that is not the way we train military officers to come up with battle plans. If you want to overcome fierce wolves, you might want to send out lions. But Jesus' plan is to send out sheep. Why would he do that? I mean, that plan doesn't make any sense on the surface. But if you think about it, it makes a world of sense. See, Jesus is not sending us out to win the battle in our own power. Jesus is sending us out to win the battle in his. And the fact that sheep overcome wolves will make clear that we didn't win in our own power. Rather, Jesus has overcome the world through our weakness. Martin Luther has taught us to sing this very idea in his most famous hymn. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Therefore, Jesus is sending us out as sheep, but he's sending us out with great confidence that he is with us, even to the end of the age. And Jesus sends us out with marching orders. Be wise as serpents and innocent 
as doves. Please note that Jesus says innocent. He does not say inoffensive. I think it's easy for us to confuse those two terms. We can imagine that if we're not offending anybody, that must be because we're being innocent as we go through this life, when in fact it might be that we're simply being ineffective, or perhaps we're not even engaged in the Great Commission at all. Uh, We might need to chew on this question a bit. It's not the kind of thing you can just get like this. you got to think about it in your own life and apply this, this question. Am I being innocent, or am I simply being ineffective, or perhaps the reason why I'm so inoffensive is that I'm not engaged in the Great Commission at all. Tom Wright helps us think about this uh, by asking a probing question. He writes, We don't expect people, that's us in the West, we don't expect people to haul us off into court for what we believe. We don't expect to be beaten up because we speak about Jesus. We certainly don't expect to find ourselves coming before governors and monarchs on a charge of treason. But Jesus' message was truly revolutionary. And like all true revolutionaries, he and his followers were regarded as very dangerous. The question we face is not so much, isn't it a shame that the rest of the world isn't as tolerant as we are in the West? But is this a sign that Christianity in the West has somehow compromised itself? Uh, I might ask the question like this. Is the lack of intense opposition in our lives because our non-Christian neighbors are so tolerant or because we have allowed our Christianity to be domesticated to make it more comfortable for our broader culture? And I suspect the answer to that question is a bit of both. Uh, We're actually blessed. In the West, uh, countries all throughout the West, and even today where almost no one goes to church, have been so deeply impacted by Christianity, but there is a large degree of built-up tolerance for us living out our faith, even in the public square. Uh, I might add that you don't have to be a prophet to realize that that tolerance is eroding right before our eyes, right? Things are changing in our culture. But there is a lot of goodwill, both to the idea that people should have religious freedom, and also to the idea that it's okay to be a Christian. So, So we do have that. But on the other side, we should not ignore the possibility that us collectively, and certainly me and you individually, may have accommodated our Christian faith to the world precisely so we don't have to deal with those parts where the claims of Christ upon our lives are offensive, just so we can get along. That is, we might be choosing the path of least resistance, rather than the path of greatest faithfulness. And God calls us to the latter. So how exactly are we to be both as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves? Uh, Let me suggest we need to hold these two things together. These are not two separate things. You are called at the same time to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. We're to think carefully both about how we reach the lost sheep, and that's something that uh, we're obviously called to do, 
But we also should think about how we go about this mission in a way that does not create unnecessary conflict for ourselves or unnecessary offense. That's what, that's what serpents do, right? They're, they're crafty. They, they slip around things that are a problem. And we ought to do that. Jesus is calling us to be wise. Um, I remember when I was a, a much younger Christian back in the 1980s, uh, it was not that uncommon in this sort of mildly charismatic movement for people to imagine that somehow being unwise made them more holy. Uh, that may surprise some of you, or maybe some of you have lived with that sort of experience, but as though I don't have to do any planning, that just shows how much faith I have. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is explicitly telling us, commanding us, that we are to seek to be wise in how we carry out the mission that he has given to us and how we are to live in this world. On the other hand, we are not to allow the reality of the wolves to paralyze us with fear. Right? It's not wisdom to say, hey, I'm a sheep, they're wolves, I can't do anything. And that's where the image of the doves comes in. Uh, doves are sometimes, actually pretty frequently used in scripture, to represent a type of a helpless creature that needs to be protected or delivered from harm. And if that is what Jesus is getting at, then innocence does not simply mean that we ought to engage in the Great Commission in an entirely upright way. Let me add, it does mean that, right? You're not to engage in the Great Commission being through trickery or deceit or clever plans. You are to do it in an upright, straightforward sort of way. But it doesn't just mean that. Uh, we must do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, but it means more than that. To be as innocent as doves suggests that we recognize our own vulnerability. Right? Recognize it. We're sheep. But instead of letting our vulnerability paralyze us, we entrust ourselves, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, we engage in mission work where we know that if God doesn't act, we're doomed. We have no hope in ourselves. And we say, yes, but God is with us. Jesus, who has sent us on this mission, has promised that he will never leave or forsake us. And he, together with the Father, has poured out the Holy Spirit not only to be on us, but to be in us. So instead of letting fear of wolves paralyze us, we go out into the mission field entrusting our defense to the one who has sent us. Jeffrey Gibbs puts it like this. Jesus exhorts the twelve to combine a wise and sober realism with a naive and trusting willingness. If Jesus wasn't with us, we would be sitting ducks. Yet praise be to God because Jesus is with us. Our mission cannot fail. Now that's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be faithful laborers in the Lord's harvest. But honestly, it's also rather challenging for us to put it into practice. So we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that by his grace, we would become more like the one who is sending us. We should remember that that's actually how Jesus goes out and wins the decisive battle. Right? Jesus goes into the battle allowing people to persecute him, to flog him, and ultimately to crucify him. And through that, he tramples Satan's sin and death into the dust. Jesus is saying we're to be like him. Uh, Jesus is sending us out 
with a most unusual battle plan, and he therefore wants to prepare us for what we will expect from the world. Now look at verses 17 through 20 with me. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So first, Jesus warns us of the danger. Then he tells us how the triune God is making provision for us to triumph in and through that danger. Now, now the danger that the 12 were facing was quite stark. Um, this is one of those times where you might be grateful that you're not an apostle. But you read these words, Jesus is saying not, some people won't like you. I mean, that's true too. But he's talking about people killing them, dragging him in the court, beating them, and so on. The danger for the 12 is really stark. Now, last week as we listened in, Jesus was telling them, uh, you know, I'm sending you on this mission in my power, and as you go, uh, heal the sick, heal the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead. And if he had stopped there, that might be the sort of mission that all of us would want to sign up for. I mean, that sounds pretty good, even if it overwhelms us a bit because we realize that we are just clay pots. But now Jesus warns them that they will be delivered over to the courts, that they would be flogged in the synagogues, and that they would be dragged before governors and kings for Christ's sake. And if we turn to the book of Acts, we discover that all of this literally took place. All of it. I consider the Apostle Paul before King Agrippa. Oh, I should say first, this is important. Uh, it's a shame that I skipped over this. All these things will take place, but notice what Jesus says. He says, when these things take place, you will bear witness. That is, the very persecutions that are coming upon the apostles, Jesus is saying, I'm going to use those as opportunities for you to proclaim the truth about who I am and what I've come to do. You will bear witness. And so we consider the apostle Paul before King Agrippa. As the apostle Paul was making his defense before Agrippa, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul answered, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner, King Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Or consider how Paul would later encourage the Philippians. Paul's in a Roman jail cell, prison, right? And he's in this prison, and he doesn't want to be there. 
None of you should want to go to prison, right? This is not like we want to suffer persecution. What does Paul tell the Philippians? He said, I want you to know that this has actually turned out for the advance of the gospel. Because I am wrongly imprisoned here, I am able to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ to the Praetorian Guard. No, the Praetorian Guard were the elite Roman soldiers who actually made and broke emperors. Paul would never have had an opportunity. You know, this this Jew from Tarsus, he's not going to get to talk to these people. But Jesus was using Paul being persecuted to bring him to proclaim the gospel to the imperial guard, and we are told that even some of Caesar's household had come to faith. That's how God changes the world. Now, beloved, it is unlikely that we will ever suffer such severe and such drastic fulfillments of our Lord's teaching. Nevertheless, we should go out with confidence that since Jesus is at work, even those who attack us will be used by the Lord to advance the gospel. Jesus is sending out the 12 on a uniquely apostolic mission. We don't want to lose sight of that. So we should not assume that these sorts of hardships will always encounter us if we're living faithfully. Uh, I have managed to make it to being 61 years old without ever being flogged in the synagogue or thrown into prison for the gospel. Uh, I trust that that's not because I have been uniformly unfaithful throughout my entire life. right? So, so you ought not to feel that these very specific things ought to happen to you. Nevertheless, from the broader context of the New Testament, we can abstract this basic principle As you are zealous for spreading the kingdom of God, you will suffer tribulation in this world. It might be very high-end and dramatic. It might simply be that you get criticized. But you should expect that that will happen. Let me say quite frankly, for some of you here today, following Jesus Christ faithfully may cost you your job. Following Jesus Christ faithfully may cost you educational opportunities. Following Jesus Christ faithfully might lead you to come under the severe criticism of your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, people whose uh, approval you want, even those of your own family, right? That, that's part of what God is doing in this world. And Jesus says, you have to learn to count it all joy, because I am at work in that, both for you to sanctify you, but also through you, for the salvation of the world. Part of being innocent as doves is that we should not be anxious about tomorrow. Uh, Beloved, see, it's even in that title. The living God has loved you in Christ since before time began. Why then would I be anxious about tomorrow or the day after that? You are loved with an everlasting love in Christ. And God will take care of you. Now we know that's true, and yet we sometimes do worry. And so we need to remind ourselves that our Father's hand is firmly on the tiller of the universe. That no one can ever snatch us out of our Father's hand. And that he is working all things together for our good and for his own glory. For the apostles, Jesus gives a particular promise for their unique circumstances. Please please do mark that in your thinking, if not in your notes. 
He gives them a particular promise for their particular unique circumstances. They do not need to worry about what they are going to say when they are brought before the great religious and civil rulers of their day. If you put yourself in their shoes, you can imagine that they very much could have worried about that. You know, they had faltered a fair amount when they were walking with Jesus. We sometimes laugh a little bit, hopefully, with Peter about this when we see some of his stumbles. Um, should remember that even before the resurrection, Peter walked on water. I've never done that. But, but the truth is, they understood their own frame. They could very easily think, you know, that one big moment when I'm dragged before the Sanhedrin, I'm dragged before King Herod, I'm dragged before the Roman procurator or the Roman governor. What happens if I just fall on my face and blow it? Right? My humiliation, which will be a humiliation that will spread throughout the whole Roman Empire, won't simply be bad for me. It'll be bad for all my brothers and sisters in the church. And Jesus says, you don't need to worry. When you stand before those great rulers of this world, it will not be you who has to come up with the message. The Holy Spirit who is in you will give you the words to say that you will glorify me and glorify my Father who is in heaven. Don't be anxious. I am sending you out on my mission, and I will take care of how this mission unfolds. Okay, that's for them, but how do we apply it to ourselves? Two points, two ideas. First, Jesus is not saying that if you're a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a Bible professor, that you do not need to work at understanding his word so that you can apply it and uh, teach useful, clear, faithful lessons from his word to his people. He is not saying that. This is not like we can, we can just have this unmediated relationship with God that's going to solve all our problems and Jesus is just going to whisper in our ears. This is an emergency uh, provision that he's making for very special circumstances in the genuine crises that will uh, afflict the apostles in their apostolic ministry. And yet, second, I do think that in a broader way, this principle continues to apply to all of us. Um, you and I are called to be faithful. You and I are called to share the good news with people. I, I honestly think that one of the reasons why it's very hard for many of us to simply tell our neighbors a bit about Jesus is we're so used to performing like this in our jobs. We realize, i got to be really good. i got to be really good. i got to get good grades. I want to get into law school and medical school and so on. And, and I'm afraid I'm not going to do that. But what we need to remind ourselves is, is that when you tell people about Jesus... Jesus is the one who makes it effective. You, you might fall on your face. And the person you're witnessing to may in the power of the Holy Spirit come to Jesus Christ. Right? We should be confident that as we go out in Christ's mission, that Christ is at work in us and through us to accomplish his, his own purposes. While we might be utterly surprised by the circumstances that we're in, our Father in heaven is not. And therefore, to the degree that you focus upon yourself, you will be anxious. And to the degree that you focus upon your Father in heaven, all your anxiety will dissipate. You do not look upon your Father in heaven doing this work and say, I'm really worried he won't be able to pull it off. So fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon your Father who loves you. 
and you will be able to move away from anxiety in carrying out Christ's mission. Well, as jarring as it is to listen to Christ's warnings about the world, the far greater challenge for most of us actually comes from our friends and family. If opposition is only from out there, we can deal with it. Let me give you a simple illustration. It is very easy for most of us to simply stand quite clearly for what Jesus says about marriage, what the Bible says, uh, how marriage is supposed to work for biblical ethics and so on, and apply it to our own lives. Until one of your nephews wants to marry another guy, and you are the only person in your extended family who refuses to go to the wedding. Well, now it's gotten really hard. Because your other family members are not going to all say, well, you know, they're a follower of Jesus. They're standing on principle. You're going to be described as unloving, uncaring, mean-spirited, a bigot, and all those other things. It's actually the, the, the stuff that we get, the pushback we get from those who are closest to us that is often the hardest for us to deal with. And by the way, it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, criticism. We also want their approval. This is why one of the key things we have to learn in order to live the Christian life is that we must seek the praise of God more than the praise of men. Because that was the reason why the Pharisees wouldn't follow Jesus. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Even when they knew the truth, they would not embrace it. Jesus knew about all our challenges, including those of brothers and sisters, and things that are almost unspeakable. And so he warns us about them in advance. That way we will not be surprised when they happen, and we will be prepared to respond in the right way. Uh, Look at verses 21 and 22 with me. Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, this is not actually the type of verse that gets put in one of those promise boxes. And we don't put it on um, greeting cards and send it to each other. Let me suggest maybe we should, actually. You know, when you're being persecuted, it is really, really helpful to know you're not outside of God's plan. But this was Jesus' plan all along. He warned us about this before it took place. Right? So this is a useful thing for us to meditate upon. And Jesus is telling us this because he loves us. Jesus himself was mocked by his brothers before he died and rose from the dead. Right? They even talked about him as being insane. They mocked him. Go, go, up, go up to Jerusalem. Right? Show yourself if you're really the one. And if Jesus is mocked, Surely we wouldn't expect less. Furthermore, the extreme nature of some of these persecutions that Jesus is describing here should help us put the criticisms that we receive in their proper context. Now, some of this is still going on in the world, particularly in very heavily Muslim parts of the world. This sort of persecution, even putting people to death for becoming Christians, is still going on. But for most of us, this is not a reality. We'll say, however, even just a touch of it um, can be very deeply moving. I I still have a profound impression from a photograph that um, a minister shared with me about 20 years ago. 
of a man in North Africa, this very heavily Muslim area in North Africa, who was a Muslim who converted to Christianity. He's probably 19, 20 years old. And his family members cut off both of his arms at his shoulders for converting to Christianity. And the photo that this minister showed me was a photograph of this man smiling ear to ear as he was baptized with no arms. He had lost his arms, but he had gained Jesus. We ought to remind ourselves from time to time that some of our brothers and sisters around the world pay an extraordinarily high price to follow Jesus Christ. That image makes me think of some rather pressing words from Hebrews 12.4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And beloved, I tell you, no, I have not. I have not resisted sin to the point of shedding my own blood, but some of our brothers and sisters already have. They've been willing to suffer even martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. And then I think about the words of Jesus in today's passage, he who endures to the end will be saved. Now there's two truths we need to hold together here. The first is a glorious truth that we want to celebrate the Holy Spirit causes every single true believer to endure to the end. We call that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God has his grip on your life. He is not going to let you go. But the second truth is also important for us to remember. This is also a call upon our lives. Jesus is saying, you, me, you, all of us, you need to press on in the faith. You need to endure to the end. Because it is those who endure to the end who will be saved. Does this mean that we should always choose to simply accept persecution? Is that the right thing to do? You know, in the early church, some people became confused about that. They even sought martyrdom, thinking that's how they were going to glorify God was by seeking to be put to death for the faith. I I trust it. They are, in fact, our brothers and sisters who we will meet in the new heavens and the new earth. But that is very mistaken. Are we to simply accept persecution with something like a type of Christian stoicism? And the answer is absolutely not. No, that is not what Jesus teaches us to do. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Let me say that again. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now as we saw last week, there are times when it's appropriate for us to shake the dust off our sandals as it were. right? To be done with the people who are rejecting Christ and to move on to other fields. Now, frankly, it can be hard in this world for us to figure out when to do that. You send a missionary to a very challenging mission field, and no one's coming to Christ for five, six, eight, nine years, and they're getting persecuted. Do they hang in there? You know, we all love to celebrate the stories where ten years later, all of a sudden, the whole village comes to Christ. Do they hang in there, or do they leave? And you're going to have those sorts of challenges in your own life. Is it time to move? Is your work become too difficult and you, you, you don't like the culture there anymore and you want to move on to somewhere else? 
And I have no clear advice for you on that at all. Nothing. It's just hard. But I do have the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus says there are times when we ought to flee from persecution. Right? We ought to remind ourselves, according to Jesus, what our mission is. Our purpose is not to fight the wolves. Our purpose is to call the sheep. And part of being as wise as serpents is avoiding the wolves, unless it's necessary. And it's only necessary because they have sought you out, or because it's necessary for you to confront the wolves in order to protect the sheep. Your mission is not to fight the wolves for the rest of your life. Your mission is to be part of God's mission, to bring the sheep into his pasture. Now please note, there were times when both the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus himself fled away from those who were trying to kill them. And I trust that nobody here is going to accuse the Apostle Paul or our Lord Jesus Christ of somehow being cowardly, or it would have been better if they stood there and got persecuted. The urgency of the mission and of your own usefulness in this world will sometimes require you to simply get away from those who are attacking you. Beloved, doing that is an act of obedience to what Jesus is saying in this passage. So Jesus has warned us about the world. He's also warned us about our friends and family. Jesus now sums up his message with a truth that is so obvious, it hardly needs to be said. But it is so vital that we all need to fix it in our minds and in our hearts. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beloved, we follow and worship a crucified Savior. We ought not to imagine that people are therefore going to embrace us and take everything we say as though, well, we know they mean well, and always be kind to us. We follow and worship a crucified Savior, and we are called to be like him. Uh, do you recall that the Pharisees had just accused Jesus of being in league with Satan? He's doing these extraordinary miracles. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's raised the dead. The, the crowd says, no one's ever seen anything like this. And they say, well, you know what? He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Beelzebul, it's actually Lord of the Flies, but it's a title that was used in uh, Jewish thought at this time to refer to Satan himself. And Jesus says, look, if they're going to call me the perfect, holy, sinless Savior, Beelzebul, you should expect they're going to have some not-so-nice words for you as well. Nevertheless, there is a wonderful bit of encouragement in these two verses. First, Jesus identifies himself as the master of the house. Yes, quite obviously, that house is the church. Jesus is the Lord over the church. And it is true that there are formidable enemies arrayed against the church. If the church were merely a human organization, it would have fallen apart centuries and centuries ago. We, after all, are just sheep going out among the wolves. 
If the church were merely a human organization, you could look at those threats and be terrified. We'd have no chance at all. And yet the Alpha and the Omega, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, is walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. This Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Beloved, no matter how great the storms are that rage against Christ's church, Almighty God has already written this verdict over all of human history. Jesus wins. Second, as Jesus sends you out into his mission in this world, he not only guarantees that he will bring you home victorious, he, he does that. He's actually doing that in this passage. Jesus does commit to doing this great thing for you. But Jesus is also committed to doing a great thing in you. See, Jesus is committed to using all the adversity you experience for your good by conforming you into his likeness. That, that's just an astonishing thing for us to contemplate. Jesus commits to using all the adversity that you experience to make you like your master so that you will be like Jesus forever. Beloved, that is our Lord's commitment to you, and Jesus never fails. Amen.